Chapter 19 of American Leaders and Heroes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad Jackson. American Leaders and Heroes by Wilbur F. Gordy. Chapter 19 Thomas Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase. 1743 1826. Through the achievements of early pioneers and settlers, of whom Daniel Boone is the type, the region lying between the Allegheny Mountains and the Mississippi River came into the possession of the United States. In a very different way did the territory lying between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains become a part of the national domain. It was acquired not by exploration or settlement, but by purchase, and the man most intimately associated with this purchase was Thomas Jefferson. He was born in 1743 near Charlottesville, Virginia, on a plantation of nearly 2,000 acres. From his father, a man of great physical strength and energy, Thomas inherited a hardy constitution. As a boy, he lived an out-of-door life, sometimes hunting for deer, wild turkeys, and other game, sometimes swimming or paddling his boat in the river near his home, and sometimes riding one of his father's horses. A skillful and daring rider, he remained to the end of his long life fond of a fine horse. When he was five years of age, he entered school, and thus early began his lifelong habit of reading and study. Even in his younger boyhood days, he was known among his playmates for industry and thoroughness. At 17, he entered William & Mary College at Williamsburg, Virginia. Although Williamsburg was a village of only 1,000 people, it was the state capital, and represented the most aristocratic and refined social life of the colony. As a young college student, Jefferson received the full advantage of this good society, and at the same time studied very hard, sometimes as much as 15 hours a day. But for his strong body and sound health, he must have broken down under such a severe strain. Being simple, refined, and gentle in manner, with a cheerful disposition and rare intelligence, he easily won and kept warm friends. One of these was the rollicking, fun-loving Patrick Henry, who with his jokes and stories kept everyone about him in good humor. He and Jefferson were, in their youth, the best of friends, and spent many an hour in playing their violins together. While in college at Williamsburg, Jefferson, according to a description left of him as he appeared at that time, was six feet two and one-half inches tall, with a slender frame, a freckled face, sandy hair, hazel gray eyes, and large feet and hands. He stood erect, straight as an arrow, a perfect picture of health and vigorous young manhood. It was during the last of his five-year stay at Williamsburg that Jefferson, then twenty-two years old, stood one day at the door of the courthouse earnestly listening to his friend Patrick Henry as he delivered his famous speech. The impassioned words of the great orator, bitterly denouncing the Stamp Act, made a deep impression upon young Jefferson's fervid nature. They fell as seed in good soil, and a few years later yielded harvest in the cause of liberty. These two men, devoted friends as they were, had many traits in common. Both were earnest patriots and fought in the same cause. But unlike Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson was a poor speaker. His power expressed itself rather through his writing, and with such grace and strength that he has rightly been called the pen of the revolution. 
At 29 years of age, he married a beautiful young widow of 23. After the wedding festivities, he and his bride started out in a four-horse carriage to drive to his home, Monticello, more than 100 miles away. It was in the month of January, and a heavy snowstorm overtook them, compelling them to abandon the carriage and continue the journey over the rough mountain roads on horseback. When at last they reached Monticello, tired and hungry, it was so late that the slaves had gone to their quarters for the night. The house was dark and the fires all out, but the bride and groom quickly kindled a fire, hunted up refreshments, and made the empty rooms ring with their songs and merriment. Thus, with joyous hearts, did they begin a long-continued and happy married life in their beautiful home, Monticello. Both Jefferson and his wife inherited wealth. When he was married, he owned 5,000 acres of land and 52 slaves. And a year later, his wife's father died and left her 40,000 acres of land and 135 slaves. He became strongly attached to his mountain home and his life there as a planter, taking great interest in laying out and cultivating the grounds and in introducing many new varieties of plants and trees. But he was too public-spirited to be lost in his private interest. In the year following his marriage, the famous Boston Tea Party emptied the chests of taxed tea into the Boston Harbor. Then followed such stirring events as the Boston Port Bill, the first meeting of the Continental Congress, and the battles of Lexington and Concord, and finally the crisis when the brave men of the Continental Congress, having decided that the time had come for the American people to declare themselves free and independent of England, appointed a committee of five to draw up the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson was one of this committee, and, as he had distinguished himself for literary ability, it fell to him to write the first draft of this great state paper. Congress spent a few days in making some unimportant changes in Jefferson's draft, but left it practically as he had written it. On July 4, 1776, all the members of the Continental Congress signed the Declaration of Independence in Carpenter's Hall, Philadelphia, a hall which is yet standing. One of the striking things that Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence was that all men are created equal. He was always democratic in feeling, trying to do what he could for the interest of rich and poor alike. There was a law in Virginia requiring that the owner of land should hand it down to his eldest son. In its place, he got a law passed which would permit all the children of a family to share in the land owned by their father. Another law in Virginia required that people should pay taxes for the support of the religious denomination, or church, known as the Established Church. As Jefferson believed this law unfair, he secured the passage of one which provided that nobody should be compelled to pay taxes for the support of any church. But Jefferson showed his sympathy for the rights of others quite as much in his private as in his public life, and won the personal attachment of his numerous household. His letters to his little daughters were full of loving advice, and their letters to him breathed the spirit of genuine affection. When, after the close of the Revolution, Franklin returned from his mission as minister to France, Jefferson was sent to take his place. On his return to Monticello at the end of five years, his slaves went miles to meet him and give him a hearty welcome home. They wished to take the horses from the carriage that they might draw it themselves, and when, arriving at the house, Jefferson alighted, they bore him proudly upon their shoulders, while they laughed and cried for joy because Massa had come home again. Jefferson was truly polite because he had warm sympathy for others, especially for the poor and the needy. 
Once, when he and his grandson were out riding together, they met a negro who bowed to them. The young man paid no attention to the negro, but Jefferson politely returned the bow, saying, Do you permit a negro to be more of a gentleman than yourself? Thus teaching the young man a useful lesson. After filling many of the highest offices in the country, Thomas Jefferson became the third president of the United States in 1801. He had looked on with serious misgivings at some of the ceremonies and formalities in the executive mansion while Washington was president. He loved Washington, but he did not think that the president of the United States should be coldly formal and hold himself aloof from the people quite as much as Washington did. He believed in Republican simplicity, which he began to practice on the very day he was inaugurated. On that occasion, he went on foot to the Capitol, clothed in his everyday dress, and attended by some of his political friends. It became his custom later, when going up to the Capitol on official business, to ride on a horse, which he tied with his own hands to a fence nearby before entering. He declined to hold weekly levies, as had been the custom, but instead opened his house to all on the 4th of July and the 1st of January. In these ways, he was carrying out his convictions that the president should be simple in dress and manner, or, in other words, should live in Republican simplicity. Many acts of Jefferson prove that he was an able statesman, but one of the greatest things he did while president in the years 1801 to 1809 was the purchase of Louisiana. Do not think of this territory as the state of Louisiana. It was far more than this, for it included all the country lying between the Mississippi River on the east and the Rocky Mountains on the west, and extending from Canada on the north to Texas on the south. In 1763, at the close of the last French War, France gave up all this vast region to Spain. But in 1800, Napoleon forced Spain to give it up to France. When the Americans learned that Louisiana had again become French territory, they were alarmed, as the country that held Louisiana could control the mouth of the Mississippi and stop all American goods passing down through the river. As a consequence, American settlers living west of the Alleghenies would not be able to find a ready outlet to the world for their products. Then, too, France might plant a strong colony in Louisiana and thus give the American people untold trouble. Accordingly, President Jefferson sent Monroe to France to aid in securing New Orleans and a stretch of territory in Louisiana lying on the east bank of the Mississippi. By getting that territory, the Americans would own the entire east bank of the river and could therefore control their own trade. The Americans approached Napoleon at a fortunate time, for he was greatly in need of money to aid him in his war with England. Besides, he feared that England might seize Louisiana with their fleet. He had therefore gladly sold us for $15 million all the immense territory of Louisiana. By carefully looking at your map, you will get some idea of its vast extent. It was much larger than all the rest of the territory which we held before this purchase was made. Jefferson himself, perhaps, hardly realized how great a thing he was doing for his country when he made the purchase. At the end of his term of office as president, Jefferson retired to private life in his much-loved home of Monticello. Famous not only for his statesmanship, but for his learning, he was called the Sage of Monticello, and was visited by people from far and near. The number of his guests was enormous, his housekeepers sometimes finding it necessary to provide fifty beds for them. Of course, all this entertaining was a great burden, and the expense of it almost ruined him financially. But his life moved happily on, 
always busy with some useful work, he took a deep interest in education and was the founder of the University of Virginia, in which he felt a just pride. On July 4, 1826, just 50 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, this great man breathed his last at the ripe age of 83. On the tombstone which marks his grave at Monticello is this inscription written by his own hand. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, of the Statutes of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. It was such things as these, things that touched the freedom of all men, that he sought to further, and in doing so found his greatest satisfaction. End of chapter 19